Hi, I'm Pui Vagan, currently the curator of the UC Irvine Library's Southeast Asian Archive. I'm an educator, I'm an oral historian, and I'm an arts advocate. So what that means is I serve on the board of directors for uh, the Vietnamese American Arts and Letters Association, which is based in Orange County, California. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you. So how does being Vietnamese, what is the meaning of being Vietnamese um, for you today? For me, being Vietnamese, um, and Vietnamese American in particular, is really about um, trying to bridge the history um, and our culture uh, and thinking about what kind of inclusive community we want to build for the next generation. So I have three children who range in ages from five to 15, and they're just now exploring their Vietnamese American roots. Um, and so I'd like to model for them like the sense of being proud of who you are, um, being, being proud in your own skin, and then also hearing your language and not shying away from um, trying to speak it in public, which, you know, I had a lot of experiences in my childhood where I was ashamed to be Vietnamese or to speak Vietnamese. So I'm trying to foster um, a society where my children won't feel that kind of shame. Your work is a lot of preserving and uh, archiving uh, these ideas and these concepts of, of our identity in the Vietnamese space. What do you think you develop this sort of passion for it? I think it developed, I, it was very early. Um, I didn't have the language or the vocabulary to explain it when I was a child, but I think being that I'm, you know, a refugee, I came to the United States when I was really young with my very large Vietnamese refugee family. And in the 80s, here in Orange County, California, we, a lot of us experienced um, racism and bullying uh, based on being different, right? So I think I developed that kind of consciousness about being different and wanting to address that. Um, I always had to be a navigator in my family, you know, translating for my parents. Um, I know a lot of people in my generation, the 1.5ers can identify with this. Um, but that also meant that I had to become an advocate at an early age. Um, and so the things that I was doing, standing in line at banks and the social security office and um, getting, um, you know, uh, social assistance for my family, all of those things turned me into an advocate for my family and my community by extension. Um, and then the history part really came later when I became an Asian American studies major um, as an undergrad. And I started to explore my own history and wanted to connect uh, the very private and personal aspects of my identity, the things that I had hidden from the world um, to what I was just starting to learn about in school um, as, as a college student, right? I was starting to read Asian American literature. Um, I still didn't see a whole lot of Vietnamese American stories. And that's what I wanted to be a part of, like building out Vietnamese American stories. Um, and then I ended up going to um, UC San Diego for my doctorate in ethnic studies. And that's when I really launched into doing oral history work and learning about the first generation, Vietnamese American refugees who were like my parents, right? Who had lost everything and had to rebuild their lives here. I wanted to come to a deeper understanding of their experiences. 
And um, doing that work really informed my um, respect and my appreciation for that generation, but also made me aware that we also we need to challenge um, the stories that have been fed to us. We have to develop new narratives um, that make it make it possible for the most diverse kinds of voices to exist together in our community. I love that. I love the idea of um, defining these new directions for narrative for our ourselves. Now, before we even go further with the, um, cause I, I wanna start to really uh, get down into the uh, Vietnamese oral history project, but before we get there, I always have to contend and explain this idea to people all over uh, the world about this idea of like, young people think they're the first generation. Can you really break down? Cause every time I'm like having to break down first, second generation, I'm always like, well, you know, there's a 1.5-er. So can you break this down as a professor to everybody listening? Because this idea, I, I find myself having to explain this over and over again, but for the record, can we set it straight? Like, what does this whole breakdown look like? Okay, first 1.5 and second generation, right? So, you know, there is the sociological literature that will be very clearly state that the first generation, they're the adults who came, whether as immigrants or as refugees, right? And their identity is often very firmly rooted in their homeland. So for us, Vietnamese, right? Um, the 1.5ers are technically, if you're defining it by the academic literature, it's those who came as teenagers. Um, so sort of had their early upbringing in the home country and then maybe partial schooling in the US or wherever they resettled. Um, and then the second generation are born and raised in uh, the U.S. or wherever folks resettled. I I came here when I was four, so I think some folks will kind of roll their eyes and say, "You're technically not 1.5. You know, you probably are closer to the second generation aligned here because most of my schooling happened here in the United States." Um, but I retained my Vietnamese language. Um, that was the the language that was mm. spoken in my home. I also pursued it in school. I, I, you know, put myself in various language programs and and tried to maintain it for my research. So that's why I identify so much with being a 1.5er. Thank you. Because, you know, that's something that people scratch their heads. Like young 25-year-old people are like, no, but I'm first generation. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. There's like, there's layers to all of this stuff. And it's very important. It's a very important distinction that we understand it because it does imply sort of where you stand. Uh, your viewpoints are kind of shaped by where you kind of fit in into that generational um, breakdown. Absolutely. And I think the, you know, um, first generation American born is, I think, how, how people position themselves, yes. like these young folks who are like, well, I was the first to be born in this, this country um, and can claim being American perhaps more fully. Um, but I think we are always straddling, right? We're always straddling these multiple identities, whether, and not all of it is birthright. Um, some of it is just by virtue of, uh, virtue of where you were raised and how much community representation you have around you. So I was very lucky to have grown up in Southern California, even though in the 80s and 90s, it was tough uh, for many of us. Um, but I, I still saw people who looked like me. I still could have access to Vietnamese food um, and have that constant loop of Paris by night playing, you know, in the background of my yeah. life. So the Vietnamese oral 
uh, history project. I want to let you know that that is um, has always been something that inspired me. You know, the act of uh, recording uh, is the precursor of, of everything that I do. You you know, uh, it inspires uh, what you know. Uh, we'll take one. I think it was Stefan Gogger. Was he in one of the episodes? And um, when he passed away, it's, it's a film director that's very close to our group. When he passed away, one of the directors in the group said, oh, let's all take a minute. And we were up on a hilltop in, in overlooking L.A. Let's take a minute to play back that episode with Stefan Gogger. And we all teared up and we listened to it uh, shortly after he passed. And I wanted to recount that story today that how important was that chapter for us, you know, and I don't know how many people tune into it. I don't know what, but for us, the act of being able to even do that was so special. And I can imagine um, other people throughout the history of the Vietnamese in America or for many future generations to come, it can affect whether it's just 10 people or seven people on a, on a hilltop overlooking LA because Stefan spent a lot of uh, time in LA with our group or it's, you know, 10,000 people being affected by the death of somebody who was on the uh, project. Um, who knows what that kind of um, reach uh, comes with. But for us, I just wanted to let you know, on, on this micro level, it affected us so greatly. So I want to get into how did you um, be, a, how did you get uh, inspired to, to, to do the work and where did it all come from yeah. and where's it going? Yeah, thank you for that question. And thank you for sharing that experience with Stefan's oral history. You know, we've lost people. I, I think that's been the story for many of us in our community, right? Whether it's the first generation, our parents and grandparents, or, or someone who passed much too young like Stefan. And, you know, um, he, around the same time that Stefan passed away, um, the VALA, Vietnamese American Arts and Letters community, also lost another one of its beloved volunteers, Hui, Zhang uh, Deng Hui. Um, he and I often emceed our Viet Film Fest together. And we also have his oral history in the collection. Wow. One of my students interviewed Hui. And, um, you know, I, I have referenced that resource often. I've gone back to it. I've looked at the photographs that Hui had contributed, a photograph of a boat that he and his father were on when they um, escaped Vietnam. You have that in the book, right? In the, because uh, I saw that. This, yes, we yeah. have it in this book, the uh, Vietnamese in Orange County, County. book. Um, but it was first initially collected through the Oral History Project. And so it's, it's stories like that, right? It's not just like these, the big and the great um, politicians and, and leaders of our community who get memorialized in various ways, but it's the everyday people that you and I are connected to, yeah. that so many people remember and love privately, we want to make sure that their, their stories become part of public history, uh, become not only part of Vietnamese American history, but of American history. You know, so um, to, to say that, so my, my story, my journey with Viet Stories or the Vietnamese American Oral History Project, it officially started in 2011. But um, way before that, you know, I certainly didn't invent oral history. Oral history is this method that has been around for a very long time. 
and um, is so brilliant because its intention is not to to you know verify if something happened in the past, if this event in fact happened, and where, and the dates, etc. Those things are often captured and chronicled already by journalists. Um, but oral history is actually to get at how people felt, right? Um, how they made meaning out of something that had happened in their lives, whether it's something so large like war um, and the displacement from their homeland or something so small and intimate, like the connections that they had with people in their families. So that's what oral history has the power to do. It's to really capture the felt and lived experiences um, and make that a part of history too. And so um, I started doing oral history when I was a grad student in San Diego, wanting to understand my community better because I had witnessed things like the 1999 high-tech protest happen in Little Saigon. And I didn't understand it quite yet as a young person. And I wanted to know, you know, why is my community so complex? Why are there so many people who are anti-communist, like my own parents? Um, Why is the distance between our generations it's felt so hard to bridge, right? And so the only way I can think for me to understand it myself was to talk to these people, to ask them questions. Um, and I came in, you know, armed with my recording devices and um, a list of questions. And oftentimes like you, the conversation would steer itself and people would tell me what they wanted me to know. And in that, that was what really made me see the beauty of this format. Yeah. It was that the narrator gets to steer the conversation. The narrator gets to decide, you know, how to represent their own lives. There's so much power in that when you can say that this is my story and I'm going to tell it in my own voice in this way. Um, So in 2011, um, Professor Linda Vo, who's at UCI as well, she had uh, been building up this idea for a long time, trying to mobilize support and getting funding. And she was able to work with uh, Frank Zhao and get uh, this position funded and recruited me um, to be the project director for the Can you tell me who Frank Zhao is to our community? He's a businessman and um, the owner of the Asian Garden Mall, Fuglapa, one of the early developers along Bolsa, who um, has, you know, is often credited with developing Little Saigon. There are many others that worked alongside him. And so I think it's important to also say there's never one founder right. of any community, right? Um, but but Frank Zhao really did care uh, about making sure that our histories had a platform and working in concert with a university that could have the infrastructure to preserve it for hundreds of years after you and I are gone. Right. I think that was important. Um, and so I came in with oral history expertise as well as Vietnamese language that was really important because you know I would have to go out and interview people like my parents and you have to talk to them in Vietnamese um, so that project was launched in 2011 and since then we've collected um, about 450 oral histories of Vietnamese Americans throughout Southern California so it's not just based in Orange County Santa Barbara down to San Diego we have voices from across these different um, cities And um, the idea was really, we wanted to have a pretty broad um, picture of who is Vietnamese American. They did have to be 30 years or older at the time when we wrote the criteria because a lot of our students would also be going out to interview. And we wanted to make sure that they were interviewing elders 
right? Whether it's from the first 1.5 or second generation. Um, and they were trained in oral history method and they were given some context for understanding the Vietnam War and the migration of our um, Vietnamese American community. And then, you know, given resources, uh, questionnaires and so on and recorders, and they went out and gathered these stories. I interviewed 50 people um, during my time overseeing the project for two years. And then after those two years, I found myself in the position of like um, becoming the, the steward of the Southeast Asian archive, which is the repository for where these oral histories would be safeguarded. Um, and I'm not trained in that way. I wasn't, um, I wasn't setting out to be a librarian or archivist when I started my training, I wanted to be a professor. So it was, it took me by surprise, actually this pivot in my career. Can I ask you something about that word trained? Um, because the, the difference between somebody who's not trained in it and the difference between somebody who is trained in it, uh, there's a lot of implications there. Uh, because I've, I view myself as somebody who's not trained in it, even though I did study uh, quite a bit of ethnographic methods uh, through my anthropology major, but I don't remember anything. That's like over 20 years ago, but I do understand the gravity of the word trained. So can you kind of break that down? Like what, what goes into that and why is it important to be trained in this way? Yeah, thank you for that. You know, I, you know, with my ethnic studies degree, I practice ethnography, um, community-based interviewing, oral history. So um, I, it was really training by doing, like you read all the theory and then you try to apply it. And it wasn't until you sit in your first interview that you realize I am wholly unprepared for this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you talk about the complexity of training, I, I felt that in my soul. <laughs> um, <laughs> And your method of training is just as good as mine. Like you have been getting behind the camera, you know, you're, you're doing all of the work too, editing. So um, I don't want to privilege kind of university-based training over the kinds of training that you can get by doing. Um, but I will say that for doing archival work, which is all, it was very new to me a decade ago. Um, the things that I had to learn were really about the mechanisms of pres preservation and then the descriptive work that you have to put in in order mm. to make these things findable. Like what use is an oral history collection if people are not using it, if our community doesn't know about it? Um, if filmmakers can't use these things to, to turn into film, you know, documentary projects or other projects that can reach an even broader audience than who we can reach in academia. So when you talk about the group that honored Stefan, uh, the group of filmmakers that honored Stefan, like you're a small group, but your reach, right, is even broader. So if you were able to use our oral mm. history and tell these stories um, through film, I, I would say that that's like the curatorial work that we need. So we're building this broad, very research-based collection. It's got like hours of recording, transcripts, you know, other documents associated with it. But it's the work that you do and that our students do and researchers from all over the world um, who come and use it that I think it, it will take it on to the next level. Um, so in terms of my training in archival work, it really is about understanding the, the connections that you need to make between preservation and access. Um, and in the last decade, I've learned so much and I've grown in terms of thinking about how the libraries and archival profession has not been good 
at representing our community. And the reason for that is because we don't have Vietnamese Americans, enough Vietnamese Americans doing this work in this lane. And so, um, so that's why I'm actually pivoting and moving on. Um, after this year, I'll be leaving UC Irvine and uh, joining UCLA as a faculty member in the information studies department, mm -hmm. which is a department that trains future archivists, librarians, curators, and memory keepers. And to me, that's really exciting because we need to get more people like us into these professions. That's amazing. Uh, I've talked to a few people, Big uh, Nop Gao up here in LA, she's um, on the board of the libraries and I've, talking, I've spoken to other uh, librarian uh, professionals and I have so many questions. Like this is not even something I prepared in the questions that for you, but since we're here, I, I, you know, we see how libraries and data and books are like all online now. Why is it so important to have the information uh, catalog and archivists? Why is this work? Uh, for librarians so important when we can, when we have Google and we can just type it in uh, and we can sort of like look for things, you know, and I'm asking this uh, from a very honest place because I uh, see so many librarian professionals um, and I'm like, oh, that's like a real thing. If you can even get a master's degree, there's things that I'm not seeing that uh, there's implications on why this is so important that I, that I don't see. Yeah, I think you're 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 actually pointing out a really crucial conversation that's happening in the LIS field, the library and information science or information studies field, which is that the proliferation of the internet and you know Wikipedia and Google, all of these search engines that are much more intuitive than even library searches, right? Um, the big question is: Is it making li library professionals obsolete? Like, do we not need librarians anymore? And my answer to that is: We actually need librarians and information professionals even more because there's a difference between um, information, like overwhelming amount of data and information, and then um, accurate and credible information. So, what you need are professionals who can help mm -hmm. guide and shape how information is dispersed. Um, who should be receiving it and then and then issues of equity in access to information so if somebody who's living in a rural community with no internet doesn't have access to information about the next disaster or you know that's the real issue right and so information professionals are poised to address those types of things and and then in our own community since we're talking about being Vietnamese and the Vietnamese American experience um, think about all of the conservative um, Trump supporting folks in our community who are getting like one channel of information, right? They often turn to YouTube um, and some really problematic sources and the disinformation, fake news and all of those things that were rampant during 2020, um, the presidential election and what led to the insurrection at the Capitol. I'm sorry to get political on you all of a sudden, but a lot of it is related to how information access is a very um, inequitable in our community and problematic. Um, and so you saw um, a surge of groups like The Interpreter or Pivot's Bit um, Fact Check emerging to address that very issue. Is that we need more information professionals in our community in order to um, point community members to credible and accessible news sources during times like 
um, election times, um, especially around issues that directly impact us. Um, and then we also need, uh, in the cultural heritage side, the archive side, right? People who understand the stakes of historical representation. So what I mean by that is, you know, um, I am in the business of preserving and providing access to artifacts, to documents, to photographs that help tell a more complete story of what happened to our community during the Vietnam War and in the exodus and in the community building phase of our um, community life. And when people say there's not enough materials like that to, to shape you know, our understanding, I can say actually there are. However, a lot of those materials have been provided and shaped by humanitarian aid workers, non-Vietnamese people who are working on our, our community's wow. issue, right? And that lens is incredibly important because you know, this gaze is a colonial gaze that doesn't allow for us to speak, again, tell the story in our own terms. So what we see is constantly images that represent our community as victims. Um, and before that, during the Vietnam War as enemies, um, and you know, you're in the business of narrative making. So you understand how important it is to counter these images with not just saying, this is our opinion, but here it's backed by historical evidence, evidence that can be found in archives, evidence that exists here and will be preserved for generations after. So that's the, these are the political stakes of historical representation. It matters, right? If you don't represent yourself, someone else will represent you and you may not like the stories that they tell. Definitely. And I think for me, doing this work is very selfish for my, you know, I've always maintained that from day one. Uh, the questions I ask are my questions and I want to know. Uh, so I am just, it's sometimes I'm lazy to even go or have to go deeper to dig about that person's, my guest's life, because there's things that I want to know that doesn't, it, it doesn't involve um, what they've done in their life. I just want to know and 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 I think about the method of that. Uh, you know, is am I just shaping? Because what, what you just said is very important. The colonial gaze. It's the people who are not Vietnamese have been doing what I've been doing, which is they only want to see what they see. So they're asking the questions from their own uh, lenses, which is what I do. I'm just asking questions from my own Vietnamese American uh, experience, uh, and I'm leaving out. Not intentionally, but I'm leaving out a lot of the things that could be portrayed from another point of view. So I hope, and I always say this to people on the program, I wish that there were more Vietnamese Americans doing podcasts or oral history so we can get a rounder picture of the community, of the society that we live here and abroad in Vietnam. I think it's important. Yes. And in all these spaces that have been, um, you know, white majority spaces. Yep. And the LIS profession, the library and information studies profession is exceedingly white. It's still overwhelmingly white. And so we need to get into these spaces, right? Universities and... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Um, and, you know, boardrooms and courtrooms and spaces where decisions are being made. Um, and people often overlook 
like the li libraries and archives because they seem like such neutral and um, benign or safe spaces. But there are really key issues that are being, um, I don't want to say debated, but actually worked on in these spaces and that's historical representation. Um, so we have to connect all of these dots, right? Um, do the advocacy work on the political front and also think about how our work in the cultural heritage side is fundamental to how the next generation will understand our generation and the generations before. Um, so yesterday I had the opportunity to give a keynote um, to this organization called the Northwest Archivist Association. So a lot of archivists from around the country. Um, but I, I shared a snippet of a poem um, that I that was really influential for me in my 20s as a young person learning about Vietnamese American identity. Um, it's a poem by Le Te Yim Thuy called um, Shrapnel Shards on Blue Water. And she wrote it as a dedication to her sister. But can I just share like the latter? Please, please, please. I love it when guests do this because it introduces, you know, this these ideas. So this, this part for me, just, it still rings true. And this poem is old. It's, it's like probably 20 years old. Um, towards the end of the poem, Shrapnel Shards on Blue Water by Le Te Yim Thuy. Our lives have been marked by the tide. Every day it surges forward, hits the rocks, strokes the sand, turns back into itself again, a fisted hand. Know this about us. We have lived our lives on the edge of oceans in anticipation of sailing into the sunrise. I tell you all this to tear apart the silence of our days and nights here. I tell you all this to fill a void of absence in our history here. We are fragmented shards blown here by a war no one wants to remember in a foreign land with an achingly familiar wound. Our survival is dependent upon never forgetting that Vietnam is not a word, a world, a love, a family, a fear to bury. Let people know Vietnam is not a war. Let people know Vietnam is not a war. Let people know Vietnam is not a war, but a piece of us, sister, and we are so much more. It's beautiful. And you know, this month is AAPI Heritage Month. So we've been, I've been thinking a lot about how to um, really amplify and make these, um, these stories about our community resonate. So something that scholars were pushing in the 90s to get people to understand that Vietnam is not a war is still something I think we struggle with today. Um, and something that our archives are constantly struggling with capturing, like the experience beyond war. Um, and the experience of Vietnamese in their own words, from their own perspectives. Um, that's what I'd like to see more of. More cultural heritage workers, more people getting into this lane, working on memory keeping, making sure that our stories are represented in our own words. You know, I, I have two questions. Uh, God, I'm going to forget them. And I have to just, let me put it out there so that I don't forget them. The first is, uh, is it appropriate to ask you how you feel about the Vietnam War documentary by Ken Burns? That's my first question. The second question that I have uh, is um, when you know that there is a viewpoint here in Viet Vietnamese American society 
and and with the proliferation of of oral history coming out from a lot of different places now, particularly in Vietnam and perhaps from the northern perspective, not necessarily from the northern government perspective, but just like Chi Nguyen Phan Quay Mai's book, The Mountains Sing, there's other perspectives that are growing and eventually we'll have a, a more rounded. Do you, how do you uh, calibrate um, the experiences coming? Uh, how do we, uh, do we, do we support it? Do we, where do we, where do we, how, how do we combine this information when it starts to get a little bit more racier, I guess, when it, when it's talking about the other side, quote unquote. So uh, that, there's two questions and, you know, I don't yeah. want to forget either one of them. It's a big one. Those are big questions, too. I think, you know, if you're asking me about Ken Burns. So when his film came out, we had we hosted him at UC Irvine. He was really trying to bring it to um, the Orange County Vietnamese American community with the influence and the size of our community. It made a lot of sense. Um, he's a very masterful filmmaker. He's built his whole career on telling stories that um perhaps a quote unquote, like the broader general American public might want to see. And in that way, I think that uh, platform that he has does raise awareness among, you know, a perhaps like a white kid living in Kansas who has never met a Vietnamese person might then become interested in learning more about that history. I think of it as a first step. Um, but I think, you know, and this is to borrow from a phrase that Viet Thanh Nguyen often uh, uses when he, he speaks, it's, um, this idea of narrative plenitude, right? That we need um, to have a multiplicity of narratives coming from all directions. And so the thing that you're gesturing at, which is that we have narratives coming from North Vietnam, um, perhaps not official narratives from the government perspective. We have narratives coming from South Vietnam, from the people who have remained, right? Who didn't leave the country after 1975. And those perspectives also deserve a platform. Um, so, for me, it's never been a question of choosing sides or thinking about, um, you know, who who should whose side should I be on? Like, should I be following my parents and their whole kind of anti-communist um, uh, sensibilities and their their memories? Well, what I like to think about is responsibility. Um, when what I mean by that is, you need to, we need to understand equity from the the lens of history. Like, whose histories have already had a platform? Um, which groups have been well represented and which haven't and for what reason. So when I say that, what I'm talking about is like effectively a lot of Vietnamese refugees in the 80s and 90s um, felt like their stories were obliterated from the map because their nation was obliterated from the map, right? South Vietnam ceased to exist as a country. Yep. Archives in Vietnam, you know, are our vernacular at best, which means like we have to really dig um, for these stories. And when you tried to escape Vietnam in the 80s into the 90s, you were classified as a traitor um, or, you know, at worst you were imprisoned if you couldn't successfully escape. So when you think of those kind of uneven um, power relationships between like the nations um, and the memory keeping practices that are related to that, it's so urgent and important to capture the voices of South Vietnamese and refugees, people who are vulnerable to their histories being erased. Um, so that doesn't mean that I don't think voices from the North or, or you know, all these per other perspectives are legitimate. I, I think that there is a, a place for them. 
um, my work though, and my understanding has been cultivated from this um, deep sensitivity to my family's history um, and, our, and our identity as refugees. So, and I think right now, you know, what we're seeing with the refugee crisis from Ukraine, um, there is so much that our stories yeah. can teach the rest of the world. It's not just this kind of particular and siloed narrative that only matters to us, right? Because we're having this conversation. It matters because so much of the world, like the, the rest of the world can learn so much from how Southeast Asians experienced war and exodus after war. We have a lot to teach. We have a lot to share as a collective. Um, and so these archives need to be preserved. And there's not, I mean, there's not enough um, spaces that can support this. What a wonderful and warm answer to the two questions. I mean, you've basically, what a master answer you put together because those two questions that I asked, uh, I didn't realize it, but they're very intertwined. Um, and the answer that you gave is, is, is awesome. Uh, you know, this year I went to, um, for the first time in my life, uh, I went to two Passover dinners and what I learned um, with the sort of the, the, the ritualized uh, experience is the storytelling. And it seems to uh, have its own framework and um, things are memorialized, like things from the ancient text, the, the old text of the Old Testament, uh, of the Jews' uh, exodus out of Egypt uh, gets recounted. And I think that uh, there's modern elements to the infusion of this happening every year uh, all around the world uh, with the Jewish diaspora. And in that way, I think um, our uh, preservation and um, the way we choose to kind of figure this out for ourselves in the Vietnamese American diaspora is so important and unique as well. And uh, Director Bao Nguyen and I had this conversation where we probably uh, should, this is something that we should do, create our own Passover tradition uh, and do it during that or whatever, during uh, a family gathering where we can uh, create these symbolic ways of keeping the old structure as well as developing these new symbols for future generations so we don't forget. And it's important not to forget this stuff because it gives uh, our culture so much strength to deal with our daily lives as well as the future. Because when I think about like all the struggles of my ancestors and my parents and grandparents, what we go through is, you know, I, I don't want to discount it, but it's really nothing compared to what they've, what they've gone through. Yeah, no, I, and I also love what you're suggesting, which is that there's a power that we can harness in reimagining these yes. things that are our tradition, right? That um, it doesn't have to be trying to recreate something that we think is authentic and carrying that with us from Vietnam, but that we here in the, the U.S. and overseas, we have the power to harness our history and forge new ways to connect with each other and build new traditions. And that's so exciting for me to hear. I think cultural producers like you have a hand in it, like you're shaping the way younger folks will come to learn about this, this story, their story. Um, and, you know, when I was thinking about, when you asked me that earlier question, I often think about how I would uh, teach as a parent, not necessarily as a professor, but as a parent, um, my three kids. And I often teach them using uh, Spider-Man, actually, isn't your in film, mm. you might appreciate this um, 
um, this anecdote is I often share the story of Spider-Man and that scene with his uncle when his uncle is dying and his uncle reminds him, right, Peter Parker, that with great power comes great responsibility. And so the way that I shape that into something that's distillable to my kids is that whoever enters into that room with the most power is responsible for the outcome of that conversation. Beautiful. So, so like I said, you know, Ken Burns has a, a huge platform and he we should hold him to account for the way that he represents the Vietnamese story. Um, and there's not a singular Vietnamese story. So I understand his, his kind of push to try to represent all these different sides but he also has to attend to which side, you know, which stories have been erased, which stories have been maligned or misrepresented and address that as well. In 2015, you um, had a book published Vietnamese in Orange County, right? When you went into that, yes. When you went into this book, uh, how did you, um, sorry, I, I, cause there's two books and I'm like, you know, trying to pay, Put the two pieces together. Yes, the book that we spoke about earlier. When you went into uh, the work of putting that book together, I'm sure you had some idea of like what what you wanted to add or what did you want to put in. Coming out and finishing it and the journey of sort of like living with it after it's published, was there any changes in the way you saw the Vietnamese uh, community in Orange County? Oh, yes. Every opportunity that I got, and in fact, every oral history that I did, changed me. So doing this book, um, which was after we had already collected a, a number of oral histories, I'd already done 50 interviews, my students had collected even more. Um, I got to work with Linda Vo and Tram Lee um, on this book project. And it's it, really, we only had nine months to complete it because there's a template for these visual history books right. Right, that are um, telling the story of a community through photographs. So it sounds like a yearbook, which is why actually the, the format ap appealed to us. It was much more accessible. So I'm thinking about things like, oh, my parents could flip through it and really relate to it, um, even though they don't have uh, a college education. And so um, we had the opportunity to source additional materials. So using crowdsourcing online, right, social media, and then doing like a community day where we invited um, Vietnamese Americans to bring in their photograph albums and we digitized them to also show them how to preserve their own history. So, it, you know, we're encouraging folks to not see archives, official places like UCI or a museum as the only mm -hmm. kind of place that can, can be, you know, the, the repository for our histories, but they can do it themselves. Keeping your own family records is really important, right? And so they were sharing photos with us and we're able to build um, out this whole book based on, you know, the Southeast Asian archives collection of photos the, the oral history project had been collecting photos and then community members contributing to us. And that allowed for us to really tell a more complete picture of 40 years of the Vietnamese American community in Orange County. And the editors or the publisher actually initially wanted us to choose a city. They wanted to say Vietnamese mm -hmm. in Westminster or Vietnamese in Garden Grove. And we pushed back and we said, no, it has to be Vietnamese in Orange County mm -hmm. because Little Saigon is more than Westminster. It's now right. in Garden Grove. It's now in Fountain Valley. It's now in Santa Ana. So um, it really changed my perspective in terms of thinking about how to do this work in partnership with the community and not saying that, oh, we're the academics, so we know best, you know, what to curate and what to um, represent. We wanted folks to tell us. Like the, so we have, you know, things about male salon workers and the cat, 
coffee shops, right? Um, in this book, aspects of the community that maybe, um, you know, folks who are really invested in the narrative of the model minority or wanting to portray us only as good refugees will want to leave out because they only want to show like the doctors and the successes. Right. Um, and we're trying to paint a picture of this is everyone in our community and we need to, you know, accept all of us as um, part of the Vietnamese American fabric. Um, yeah, so that, that's all I'll say about that book for now. <laughs> this idea of uh, Orange County, um, I have wanted to ask an, an academic person, an academic professional for a while. Uh, yeah, as I was reading uh, the different things that, that you've worked in, uh, this whole idea of the refugee dispersion uh, policy, uh, when all the refugees came, uh, like 130,000 came to the United States, they wanted to break it up uh, for whatever reason. There's so many different reasons. Looking back today, uh, if let's say the Ukrainian, there's 100,000 Ukrainians coming in. Looking back as a professional today, how should the U.S. government approach this? Uh, knowing that what we know now after 46 years, how do you think that they should go about uh, that same uh, dispersion uh, technique? So I'll also say my background is not in public policy, but what I've known, uh, what I've learned from stewarding these histories is that we're going to gravitate. People, it's a human kind of trait to gravitate towards where you have others who are like you, where you feel a sense of belonging. So if governments actually treated people like people and not like an economic problem to solve, right? Um, then they would actually look for areas where there are networks and supportive infrastructure. So let's talk about the Ukrainian case, for example. Are there pockets of Ukrainians already established somewhere, churches and temples and organizations that can really help facilitate community building from the get-go, rather than you know, going through this period of struggle as we did. My family was resettled in upstate New York where there wasn't Vietnamese representation anywhere. We were sponsored by a Lutheran church and were baptized along the way um, from a Buddhist background. And so when we got there, my dad, who though he didn't have much of an education is a very smart man. He recognized right away that we're not gonna live very well here. And he boarded us on a Greyhound bus to go cross country to California so we could be in Orange County. And this is pre-internet. So how did he even know these things, right? Like the networks were strong and informal and people knew how to connect. Um, what, what I think, this is a, a universal trait. I think human beings just want to feel a sense of belonging and they'll build community where they go. And so let's not disperse refugees based on any perceived threat or impact to a region economically. Um, that's like the biggest advice I can give in terms of refugee resettlement. But what we've seen from the pattern of Vietnamese entering Orange County, right? Camp Pendleton was the first U.S. military base set up to receive that first cohort, that first wave. And it was the largest, a process over 50,000 um, Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees. And a lot of those folks resettled here in Orange County, in San Diego, in Loma Linda because of the church. Um, and a lot of that sponsorship was facilitated by um, uh, religious organizations. So even though there was kind of pushback from the American public, people didn't want to welcome refugees even here in the progressive state of California, um, the, the churches helped to resettle the refugees. Yeah. It was a humanitarian argument. It was one of like moral um, obligation. 
If you had all the time and money and resources at your fingertips today, where would you uh, direct your energy to preserve or to archive? Mm. I've been having these really fun conversations with some folks that I've met recently who want to start a museum um, in Little Saigon for our community, one that's separate from an archive like ours at UC Irvine that, you know, when you're at a university campus, the biggest barrier is parking. And then after that, it's just like finding the place, right? Um, So it's not the most accessible in that way as a physical place to visit. And one of my lifelong goals has really been to have a, a space where you feel represented and you feel seen. And I can share with you that, you know, in in having hosted a lot of groups of young people, we've had like classes coming on field trips and their teachers spending like six months arranging it. One of the most rewarding moments in my career was actually witnessing a 16 year old seeing her grandmother's book in Vietnamese um, on our shelves in the library. And then seeing her grandmother's handwritten manuscript preserved in the archive and being overwhelmed with the sense like, yes, our community feels seen, they feel represented. Um, But how can we foster that feeling even more in a space that's welcoming to someone like my parents? I always go back to that. Like, why do I do this work? Why do I, you know, um, care so much? It's for people like my parents and then for people like my children. I want them all to feel the sense of pride and belonging. That, that being Vietnamese isn't something that they have to be in private, that they can be seen and recognized in public and that this is an identity that's celebrated. And I think one way to do that is actually to have um, museums, libraries, archives, like all over having uh, these materials and sharing it. Yeah, like the Museum of Tolerance we have here in LA. It's a good, yeah. really good example. Uh, you know, we have limited time And I'm wondering if I left out anything because, you know, I have a lot more questions, but, you know, since time is limited, is there anything that you'd like to share with me? Um, Well, I I will share with you that right now, you know, um, a few months ago, uh, the book that I've been working on with Elaine Lewinick and Gustavo Ariano was published by the University of California Press. And um, unlike this book, uh, unlike Vietnamese in Orange County, that book, which is called a people's guide to Orange County is sort of like these historical entries that are short and very digestible, followed by food recommendations and sites of interest. Um, Oh, and I flip right to the middle. And as you can see, this is a picture of um, Bolsa Avenue um, during the high-tech protests, a photograph that I chose. So in the middle section of this book, there's a lot of representation of Vietnamese American stories. Um, And they're not necessarily just stories of struggle. Um, There are actually a lot of stories of resilience and resistance about moments when we stood up and we advocated for ourselves. Um, So for example, there's a story about uh, some teenage girls who were profiled in the 90s by the police. So in California in the 90s, there was something called a California gang database, Cal gang database, right? In Orange County, we often refer to it as the Asian mug books where police would just stop and photograph youngsters uh, based on the assumption that they were gangsters. And it could just be a few of them gathered at a payphone, right, calling for a ride, such as the case of these girls who were hanging outside of a coffee shop um, and they got photographed. And one of those girls found out later that her photograph was pinned at the Garden Grove police station 
bulletin board. And she, uh, with the help of the ACLU and other organizations, she successfully sued the police department and won. And she was just like a high school student um, at Tustin. You know, I think she was like a straight A student too, but a Vietnamese American girl making a difference, making a change. And these stories aren't very well known, right? There've been ways that we have been real badasses in our community where we've said that this is not okay. We're not going to stand for it and we're going to make some change. And so I've really been trying to focus my energies and doing that kind of research to find these stories of when we have persisted uh, despite the odds where we've, you know, and outside of that kind of war and refugee story where we've also done some on the ground work of building our community up and making sure that the most vulnerable members of our community are supported. Um, so thank you so much for inviting me and, uh, you know, allowing me to share some of the things that I care about and dropping that um, news about me leaving UC Irvine. Um, I'm really excited to start the next chapter and encourage people to come work with me, um, to come find out more about this archives and libraries and information studies field, what that's all about. Because <coughs> we need you. We need people that look like us. We need people that care about our community doing this work. Thank you so much. Uh, my time with you today was, uh, I, 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 very surprising because we went into um, things that I did not prepare for. And those oftentimes for me are the best uh, times that I have with guests is when, you know, you prepare a certain amount of uh, questions based on what you can find, but you discover things that are, that are things that, you know, I couldn't find um, on, on things that were written about you. And so, you know, it, it's always a, a don't fun... believe everything. Don't believe everything that's written about me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And then, you know, uh, in the future, this is the first of hopefully many episodes that we can get back together, you know, and then next I, I would love to do this for the next two decades. You know, I, I always put that out there uh, to do this because it's a lot of fun and I've, I've learned so much and uh, I feel like I'm, you know, a percent smarter than I was last year. So this is a, a, a good thing. That's so awesome. Thank you for doing this work and, and building out our platforms for storytelling. You're welcome. And um, thanks again. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.